It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we talk about the most recent updates from Mariupol and speak to women and LGBTQI plus activist Olena Shevchenko about her experiences of the war and what her charitable organization is doing to help. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's April 13th, day 49. And today I'm joined by Assistant Foreign Editor Katie O'Neill and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley. Dominic Nichols is away. I started by asking Katie for the latest news from Mariupol. Yeah, fighting continues to be very fierce in Mariupol. It's an area that's been really beleaguered during the war and Ukrainian forces have, you know, so far put on a really valiant um, display of defence. But uh, we're hearing reports from Ukrainians on the ground saying that they're running out of ammunition, they're outmanned and they're outnumbered and that's really coming home to roost now. There are uh, reports from the Russian Defence Ministry today saying that uh, about a thousand Ukrainian Marines in Mariupol have downed weapons and have surrendered. The Ukrainians are yet to confirm that report, but um, it's also being cited by Katarov, the uh, Chechen leader who uh, who claims to be in Mariupol. Uh, among that uh, brigade that has supposedly re- re- uh, the downed arms in Mariupol is um, a British man called Johnny Aslan. He is a volunteer Marine, so he's part of that 36th Marine Brigade that has supposedly surrendered to Russian forces in Mariupol. Um, we had uh, carried a report in today's paper uh, which said that Johnny Aislin has uh, written a social media post in which he said that the Marines that he was fighting amongst uh, had no chance and uh, had no option but to surrender. Um, the Mariupol mayor today has said that around 100,000 people need to be evacuated from the city. Um, however, the Ukrainians were not able to launch any uh, humanitarian corridors today because uh, shelling is so fierce in the east. We see Russian columns converging on the Donbass and in the east. So, um, yeah, it's pretty pretty grim reports from Mariupol this morning. Thanks, Casey. Francis, do you have anything to add to that? 
Um, I would just add that we've spoken, I think, very briefly, but I think it's worth just taking this moment to uh, consider it a little bit more deeply, the appointment of um, a new army general in the Donbass region, um, Alexander Dvornikov. Uh, he is now the sort of effectively the new commander in Ukraine as the as the um, Russians have sought to centralise command and control into the Donbass region. Now, what's significant about him concerningly is his com previous command experience in Syria, where, of course, chemical warfare and incredibly vicious tactics were uh, normalised. And I think it speaks to the um, brutality that we can expect in the coming days and weeks as the front is extended there. Um, the defence... Uh, Secretary and Defence Ministry have put out this morning here in Britain um, some analysis about him and what they expect to be happening um, in the coming days. And as I say, the messaging is about these progressing offensives in the Donbass and a refocusing of military efforts there, demonstrating, and this is a quote, demonstrates how determined Ukrainian resistance and ineffective pre-war planning have forced Russia to reassess its operations. But as I say, it's a concerning development Development and one that I think um, speaks to this um, increasing violence that we can expect in the coming days and weeks as Putin's forces and, of course, Putin himself have become increasingly desperate. Thanks, Francis. Can we can we talk a little bit about uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, um, a prisoner captured by the Ukrainians yesterday? It was it was seen as a bit, a bit of a coup for them. So who was he? Why does he matter? Medvedchuk is a uh, Ukrainian who is a very close ally to Putin. So close is he to Putin that uh, Medvedchuk uh, has made Putin the godfather of his daughter. He is a pro-Russian separatist in the east of Ukraine. He'd previously been under house arrest. Uh, the Ukrainians had put him under house arrest um, owing to uh, suspicions that he was leaking information to the Russians and um, owing to some of his actions during the annexation of Crimea. Um, but during the start of the invasion, at the very start, it emerged that he had escaped house arrest. Um, he was at large and this has been a bone of contention for the Ukrainians. Uh, it has now emerged that they have captured him or recaptured him. Um, and we've seen images put out uh, today and, and last night from the Ukrainians of, of Medvedchuk looking um, very uh, downcast, naturally, uh, in handcuffs. Zelensky today has confirmed that uh, he has been recaptured and he has, in fact, offered him up as a, a potential uh, in a maybe forthcoming prisoner swap. So, yeah, something that uh, Ukrainians will be uh, applauding today, that development. Um, I think it's also significant um, that this is somebody who effectively controlled probably around 10% of the Ukrainian parliament at the height of his powers. And it just speaks to the shift that we've seen in Ukraine um, in the more Western direction since the invasion. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that had the Russian offensive gone the way that was intended, that Kiev had been uh, in, invaded and successfully in the, those opening days and Zelensky perhaps had been captured or forced to flee the country, then it could well have been that um, he was actually the, the, the sort of puppet 
leader of Ukraine. And so I think, as I say, it just speaks to the shifts that we have seen that now this very, very influential Ukrainian uh, politician and effectively, a, uh, a, as I say, a very, very close ally of Putin is now um, beyond the pale and has been photographed in this way. Before we move on to the some of the diplomatic developments that we've seen today, because there have been quite a few, um, can we talk a little bit about Abucha? There's been more more people, uh, the, death, the death toll has climbed as, as Ukrainian and foreign investigators are finding more bodies. Can we talk a little bit about that? What's, what's the latest there? Yes, well, Buka, of course, has been in the minds of all of us ever since the discoveries of, of so many uh, atrocities in uh, previous days. And um, there has been some more analysis of that um, in terms of the death toll. So it's believed now that more than 720 people were killed in Buka and other Kiev sub- suburbs that were occupied by Russian troops, and more than 200 others are considered missing. That comes from the Ukraine's interior ministry. Um, this morning. And as I say, it's further evidence of the scale of the uh, the crimes that appear to have been committed by Russian forces there. I spoke yesterday about an investigative piece by the New York Times where they were tracing the life stories and um, final moments of some of the bodies that were discovered in Bucha. And um, it, it obviously um, completely shows the lies of Putin's propaganda machine, claiming that these were actually uh, killed by Ukrainians because, you know, people who survived in, in Buka were able to testify to what really occurred when these people were innocent people were were killed by by Russian forces. And as I say, I think this is only the beginning of of a, of a broader trend that we will see. I mean, Mariupol, if it, if, if it falls completely, um, it may be. Um, some time before we're able to understand the true scale of what has occurred there. But from what we are hearing, and and, and as many as 10,000 killed, I think we can expect even worse scenes when hopefully Mariupol at some point is is eventually um, liberated. I'll just come in there and and add that another quite sinister development from Bucha yesterday was uh, a report from the Ukrainians, their human rights body there, saying that as a result of being raped by Russian soldiers, nine women are now pregnant in Bucha. And this is, um, you know, as as the war is is going on and Russians are retreating from different areas and the international community is able to go in and see the extent of the damage that they've left behind. A common theme that is emerging is is the sexual assault of women, um, something that, you know, is is a sad uh, reality of, of war, but perhaps one that we didn't expect to see uh, darkening our door in Europe. Thanks both. Moving on to the diplomacy. So Joe Biden has said for the first time on Tuesday that there is growing evidence that uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine amounts to genocide. He, he couched that by saying that it'll be up to lawyers to make the final determination. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has, has reacted by, by, saying we should be, by, by saying we should be careful with our language. Um, what, what's happened exactly? And does this amount to a diplomatic spat or is it just a disagreement? Well, I think the definition of genocide is one that obviously has is, 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 is very complicated, not only due to the legal parameters, but also how it's understood, I think, in the context of European history. Typically, um, a genocide is described about the, the attempted murder of an entire ethnic group. Um, but it has, as I say, some other understandings that are slightly broader in terms of mass murder. And so we have to be a little bit careful about that language. And I think that that's what Macron was speaking to when he said to be careful around the language. But it is certainly significant. And what we don't know is is, is whether President Biden meant this as a deliberate 
political strategy, you know, to underline the brutality of Putin, or whether it was a sort of misspeak um, in as part of a, a broader um, speech that he was giving. We don't know. Um, but it is, I think, again, underlining the, what, the, 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 the fact that it's going to be very, very challenging for the international community to have any dealings whatsoever with Putin when you're calling him some, somebody who has participated in genocide or at the very least mass murder and, and, and war crimes. Um, it's effectively, I think, shutting the door on, on certain diplomatic efforts. We're not going to see, I don't believe, um, President Biden or an American president shaking hands with Vladimir Putin ever again. Um, that, I think, for many of us would be seen as a, as a positive thing, that, you know, you make this man um, an international pariah. And yet, remember, this will have consequences, not only for peace talks, but also for the long-term relationship with Russia. Um, and, you know, it's something that, that, that may well cause complications further down the road. Um, if I could just speak to one other very interesting diplomatic development, which is more or less breaking within the last half an hour, um, we hear that Sweden is on the verge of applying for NATO membership. We alluded, alluded to this yesterday as being a possibility. Um, and so are Finland as well. But Sweden, we actually know that seems to be uh, moving very much uh, considerably quicker. Um, so that would be two other states um, uh, that are effectively on Russia's border uh, applying to 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 join um, the joint military pact. Again, it underlines the mistakes that uh, Putin has made. He was hoping that this would send a clear message to the states of Eastern Europe that, uh, you know, they were within essentially Russian sphere of influence. And that has clearly now uh, backfired in terms of how those uh, those nations are now steered more towards the West. But I just wanted to comment uh, on one other aspect of this, which is the ages of the of the leaders in these countries. So we've talked before about um, Angela Merkel and the perhaps naivety and, 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 and mistakes that she has made in terms of her relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin. Um, the uh, Swedish uh, prime minister is 55 years old. Merkel was 67. And the Finnish prime minister, um, Sanna Marin, is 36. I just, as I say, I think it's a comment on the generational shift that we are seeing, that perhaps some of that... Um, perhaps historical baggage or, or attitudes towards Russia are now beginning to shift. And the current leadership of these powers um, is now moving more westward. And essentially, I think it just, as I say, it underlines the disavowing of the policies of the previous generation towards Russia in, in Eastern Europe. And so, as I say, this is a very significant shift um, as some of these Eastern European nations lean even more closely towards, towards the West and NATO. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Casey, is there anything you'd like to add before we welcome Elena Shevchenko to the chat? As Francis was alluding to there, when Putin launched the invasion in Ukraine, one of the justifications for his war was to combat the expansion of NATO. Um, so the the reports coming out of Sweden that Sweden is planning to, to join NATO this summer um, and the words from the Finnish Prime Minister that they will make that decision within weeks, not months, is uh, something that's likely to be quite effective in getting under Putin's skin. He said that sanctions don't mean much to him and that's been kind of the the thrust of the Western response to date. So uh, this expansion of, of NATO is something that is likely to uh, to perturb him. Just to quickly go back to the, the Biden uh, words today, Joe Biden has to date really resisted calling this a genocide at his press conferences in the in the White House, his media advisors constantly not being drawn on that, although Biden has accused Putin of 
war crimes he has yet to until today call this uh, a genocide which he did during a speech in Iowa last night but um, just to touch on the sort of uh, the, the contrast between himself and Macron uh, once again Macron was it's cautioning today that we have to be careful about our language but this isn't the first time that uh, he's made such comments after uh, Biden has spoken out about the war in Ukraine during a speech in uh, Warsaw recently the uh, US president said that by uh, said that Mr. Putin can't remain in power, um, which was sort of seized upon and um, you know taken to mean that he was calling for a regime change in Russia. Uh, it forced the U.S. press office uh, in the White House to to come out and clarify that Mr. Biden wasn't calling for a regime change. And after that, Mr. Macron uh, said that it was important that we don't escalate tensions um, in in terms of the rhetoric around the war. So there is sort of a contrast in between the uh, the responses of those two Western leaders. Olena Shevchenko is a leading campaigner for female and LGBTQI plus rights in Ukraine. In 2008, she founded the NGO Insight, and more recently, Marsh Zinok, a women's rights initiative that has been giving practical assistance for women, their children and families since Russia invaded in February. Olena spoke to us from Lviv, and for this conversation, Francis, Katie and I were also joined by activist Val Voshevska. I'm actually staying in Lviv where we have shelters which we established as a response to the war in Ukraine. So basically what we did, we did uh, two shelters for LGBTQI person and also women, which is based now in Western region. So I'm traveling like all around the Ukraine trying to help and support of those who are the most marginalized ones and uh, left behind, let's be honest, uh, during this war without any support, without access to food, medicines, hormones, relocation, everything. So what we've been trying to do now is to support of the casual people who are in a very bad situation. And for those people, for those people listening who don't know, can you tell us what, what is your organization uh, and break down for us? What is it you do exactly? So um, I see you set up shelters um, and send aid packages out. What are in those packages? Yeah, well, uh, I represent now inside public organization, which uh, before the war was an advocacy and also community-based LGBTQI organization. But I also represent the Women's March, which we established four years ago as a main advocacy event for uh, women and men equality, for feminism and gender equality, ratification of Istanbul Convention. But now we are completely reoriented, of course, to um, deliver the humanitarian needs for our communities. So except the shelters where we can host people, uh, we also uh, doing a lot of work with relocation and evacuation people from the conflict, from the bombing cities and also from those territories which are now under occupation. We are trying to bring them to more safe spaces like here in Western Ukraine still, and then also to relocate them to other countries where we have partners who can take care of them. We also, for instance, established uh, a good cooperation, let's be honest, with the Airbnb um, to somehow help women with children which are fleeing Ukraine. So now they have at least one month of free accommodation in the safe place because... Honestly, not every house in Europe is a safe place for women with children because of their additional vulnerability during 
the war. And uh, also we do a huge amount of work of delivering humanitarian aid by the request. So we have a forms which people fill and we are trying to send everywhere where it's possible to send it, of course, by post or just to rent a car and somehow deliver those packages with food, medicines, hygiene, things and other things which people are uh, asking us to deliver. Thanks, Elena. Um, also, very good to welcome Val Voschewska, who's joined on the uh, the official uh, organization's official account. Uh, Val, is there anything you'd like to, to add to that? What, what should foreign listeners know about what's happening in Ukraine and the work that you guys are doing? I think we've been saying for quite a while that it's just important for us to to know that um, people are listening to our actual needs, um, what what Ukrainian people need, and and um, that the help that we are given is actually stuff that we we have asked for. Um, and Olena just spoke about it briefly as well. So just as as long as we we sort of you know, I think Olena, I don't know if you spoke about it um, before as well, but there are certain things that are probably a little bit. You know, people send it with goodwill, but uh, sometimes they just clog up, you know, storage facilities and, and, for example, like, you know, summer dresses for women, not very needed right now. Medicine is much more needed and, and, and so on and so forth. So um, and Olena, both on her account and for, on Women's March, we do specifically ask for specific things like donations and, and, and whatnot. So just to say that uh, as long as people are listening to us and, and listening to our needs and supporting us in the ways that we need to. That's all we can ask for at this point. And in your organization, who are the volunteers? Um, the people people that have been working with you from before the war and have you found new people since? Well, I can answer on that. Uh, I, I would say that like the whole team uh, is still working uh, from the different parts of the Ukraine and some of them also are now located in European countries. But what we also did and what we also see that, like, let's say the beauty of consolidation of Ukrainian people nowadays, that here in Lviv, for instance, then we call for volunteers who want to help to support people to pack, you know, to buy things, to deliver things. We uh, gathered more than 35 people, you know, during one day. So basically that's mostly those people also who are now internally displaced persons like us who also suffered but they came to support others so i guess that uh, in such circumstances of course we can talk uh, a lot about the women's solidarity and uh, self-support and also you know this uh, this union uh, around the, the one thing like to support others who are now in danger you must be hearing an awful lot of awful um awful stories from the people you're helping is it difficult um for, for you to, to sometimes to get through the day how, how do you motivate yourself you know the, the main thing here i guess is uh, for instance during the first day of the war i just subscribe to uh, different chats volunteers chats in different cities just to see the whole situation and i'm still there so uh each day that's the thousands of stories of casual people who are sending, you know, they desperate, they are like dying, they can't leave the city, and they all ask for help. And it is, uh, it is awful, honestly, because you just realize that you can't uh, help to everybody. That's the thing. And that's also the general crisis, which is not 
like uh, it's it, it just very generalized like in terms of the support and help so for instance for those who are still there in the danger that's mostly women who can't leave because they are taking care about others small children elderly people people with disabilities and it seems like that's it's not like nobody cares but it seems like in general situation people just saying like leave your city go to more safe places but nobody thinks that many people have special needs and they can't just leave that's not possible you mentioned earlier on that um, your shelters for lgbtqi people how has the war and this is a question i guess for elena and and for val how has the war affected this community in a way that's potentially even even more dire than for others i would say like that that's uh, also like general threats of course the threats of the security and safety but the additional burden uh, is of course this 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 fear about the possible occupation of russia because we already heard and we also went through this history eight years ago then the donbass was occupied and the crimea as well we heard so many stories and we also saw many people from lgbtqi communities who were tortured in this basement you know on the donbass and crimea and they also was the victims of the crimes hate crimes due to their identities due to their sexual orientation so of course like the first waves of those who tried to left the uh, ukraine uh, we saw many many families like two girls with children one two three children with their entire families so that's th- those who are specifically scared of this possible regime. Val, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Just, uh, obviously, uh, this is uh, mostly a question for Olena, but just to say, for those of you who don't know, Olena is one of the leading um, LGBTI activists and women's rights activists in Ukraine and has been doing this work for a very long time and not just starting with, you know, the latest iteration of the war, but um, all the way back to Maidan and probably before that, 2014, and so on and so forth. So... I guess for those who want to know more and, and help more, um, Olena's your person to follow. Absolutely. I believe Francis has a question. Yes, thank you, David, and, and thank you both. I'm very interested by what you were saying, Elena, about the use of um, t- technology in keeping in touch with various different groups around the country. I'm just wondering if you could speak generally about the use of, I know Telegram has been something apparently that's been used a lot, just about the general experience of how from the start of the war this this has been used in a way that, that brings people together, but perhaps also for for sharing accurate information. Just be interested in your, your perspective on that, because it seems something that's quite new to, to, um, to, to this um, that we've not seen before. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, um, I, I saw the huge... Uh, impact of this, you know, um, usage of these platforms for people who are asking for help, who are seeking for help, because before, of course, of course, it was not so widespread. Let's let's be honest. And mainly, it, it is, let's say, uh, popular now among LGBTQI communities. But then we talk about women. Honestly, we still have a problem because many of those who needs. Um, support and help they can't use it just you know don't have skills don't have any access so for instance we um, received around 10 
15 requests to our social, traditional social networks like Facebook, for instance, on the Women's March. Then people just saying like, I need the psychological support because we also have this hotline 24-7 in Telegram for women. And they said like, I don't know how to join. I don't know how to use it. So basically that that's uh, what we also see, like this additional um, issues uh, with somehow during the war um, start to educate people how to use it. But that also what I observed during this war, like uh, it seems to me like we come back like 10 years ago or even 15 years ago, because what I expect that people will be, you know, share all those initiatives in the social network, uh, Facebook, for instance, Instagram, Telegram. But what we still experience that uh, if you need some help from somebody, you need to call. Like now it's face-to-face communication. That what is working. Basically, I need to call to the transport company. I need to call to some friend who will call to some friend and then they will deliver something to you. So now we're just calling. It's fascinating, isn't it, that, um, that that we've seen these developments in the way that you describe. And I, it brings to mind to me some of the um, conversations and, and analysis that occurred after the Arab Spring and the use of technology there in, 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 in keeping people united, even in times when other platforms went down. I just have one other question to you, Elena, which is just about the general experience of being in Ukraine at the moment. I mean, what what's a day-to-day existence like is are the shops open is this a country that is still almost impossible to travel around or in, in those areas that were formerly occupied i mean just what's what's the experience like is is is, is this a, a country that feels like it's still very much in those places that were once controlled at, at, at war or does it feel like these places have been liberated and already starting to rebuild i think that's something that that listeners will find very interesting that's uh, pretty different um, in terms of experience. So, for instance, I spent uh, more than two weeks um, in Kiev under a very heavy bombing, let's say. It, it was not just bombing, but also shootings everywhere around my house. And many houses around mine uh, are ruined now in Kiev. So it really depends on the district. I mean, in terms of the huge, big Kiev, of course, capital. But we all saw what happened to the small cities around Kiev. So basically, my experience, it was like during the first two or three days of the war, it was more or less, let's say, fine because shops still work, like pharmacies open and you can't like you can leave your house and go somewhere. But then it completely changed. So uh, there was no access anymore to the food stores or pharmacies. And people just, you know, were so desperate looking for at least something. Because even water, it was a huge deficit of the drinking water in the shops. Because people just, you know, in panic, they tried to, to, um, to buy everything which is possible. And it became worse and worse, you know, each day including those heavy bombing. So basically, that's why I made a solution uh, to relocate our uh, organization to more safe region, let's say, uh, in the western Ukraine and establish here shelters, because at least it is possible to do something for people here. But honestly, then I came here to Lviv. It was a shock for me. Uh, During several days, I just... uh, 
I, I just can't got the sense how it's possible uh, to go uh, around, for instance, to take coffee or just have a walk around the city without shootings, without, you know, people are, who are trying to search for anything, pharmacies, like food stores and everything like that. So it is a pretty hard, let's say, experience, I guess, that for everybody, like then you are uh, changing those regions or even for those, I can't even imagine, for those who came to other countries. It is a, so, so it is hard on the psychological level to adopt. Katie, you've been listening to this, this conversation. I'm just wondering if you had any questions for Elena or for Val. Um, yeah, I, I think what you're saying there about uh, everyday life in in Ukraine is is uh, is incredibly interesting. Obviously, this is kind of the the million dollar question, but I wonder from your perspective how you see things potentially going and and what your hopes are for uh, the future. I don't know. I, I still don't have the time, you know, um, to understand what will happen because from the beginning I thought like few days and everything will come back to normal life. But now I understand that it will never happen because, well, for many people, uh, there will be no uh, normal previous life because their houses are destroyed. Um, Their lives are destroyed. Many people died. And for instance, even if the war will uh, finish soon, we all hope for that, of course. Uh, But I can't even imagine the uh, huge crisis afterwards because even now we receive the, you know, the requests from different women from different cities uh and they like two weeks ago already uh, uh we started to receive this request like they are saying we don't have any jobs we don't have any access to work uh we need money so can you imagine that the the amount of such people uh that will be increasing you know each day so i don't know how it will be possible to support everybody um, Val, I know you, you have to drop, drop off in a few minutes. Um, do you want to give us your final thoughts? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, with the realisation that this might not be over that fast, I think comes also a realisation of, of us having to slightly shift how we think about some of the people who have been affected by war and, and sort of, you know, in particular, you know, I'm talking about women. I think there's been so many reports um, around sexual violence uh, perpetrated by Russian soldiers and we've seen that over the past couple of days quite intensely Um, and I think what we have been trying to also encourage people encourage people our audiences that are outside of Ukraine is to view women not just as sort of you know objects in a way of things that happen to them but also as um, individuals who are fighting together with everyone they're not just you know sisters mothers and grandmothers of, of brave heroes um, protecting Ukraine, but they're actually those brave heroes. And I think the work that um, Olena and, and the volunteers who are currently in Ukraine have been doing just goes to show as well how important it is for us to remember that um, a lot of a lot of these people are are actively um, and bravely and, you know, unstoppably uh, doing a lot of work uh, to protect Ukraine and to support people all across the country. So I would just ask everyone if it's possible and uh, if this is something that you're interested in following further, just to follow us, um, both the account I'm speaking from today, Olena's account, and we're across across all the other social media channels for you to look at um, how you can get involved and how you can help. And um, just a final thought, if you do see stories of, of brave Ukrainian women who have been 
um, doing some of this amazing work, just try to amplify them and support them because it's quite important for us to know that we are being heard. Thank you very much, Val. Um, just a question for Elena. You mentioned earlier um, about the sense of solidarity you felt um, when you were finding new volunteers. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Um, has has the war uh, in some sense invigorated um, the Ukrainian community? And how has that felt that you, that you put out a call for volunteers and you, had, you said you had more than 30 people? Yeah, I said more than 30 people per day. So basically it's it's much more. So it seems to me like, um, yeah, it unites us, uh, like, you know, the, the huge group of those who wants to support others. So, for instance, among those people who came to us to volunteer, uh, I just observed many people who eight years ago escaped from Donbass. Their houses, their lives were ruined first time. And then now it's the second time. But still they found the forces to come here like having almost nothing and to put their forces to support others. That's what I'm uh, talking about. We've spoken a lot on this podcast and there's been so much commentary in, in the West about President Zelensky's leadership. And I just wanted to hear your perspective on on him and what you feel the, the common feeling around uh, among Ukrainians is towards towards your leader. Well, I would say that, yes, I see the consolidation of uh, Ukrainian society around him. And it's first of all because of the war, uh, because it seems to us that uh, they are taking like good solutions now and supporting others. And then we also, you know, consolidate ourselves to fight together. So I guess that this is pretty uh, casual thing, which is happening during all wars. Then you have a leader who is mostly doing the right thing, so people trying to support. Uh, but seriously, I, I just thinking about the, the, the next uh, steps and continuation. It really depends on what will be during uh, the next rounds of negotiations, because now it seems to me like everybody uh, mostly oriented to, um, to be a winner in this war. Uh, but honestly, nobody knows what does it mean. Yes, that's a really interesting perspective, and I agree. I think that the, the, the what happens in the negotiations and what what perhaps Zelensky is willing to to concede, perhaps, will be very relevant to to the next phase of of everything. I just have one other question relating to sort of Zelensky and the broader political picture. I'm very conscious that obviously you've been working so intensely that it may not be something that you've been as focused on, but. Um, what is your just general feeling about how the West, perhaps, or Western Europe has responded in America to Ukraine's crisis? Do you think that the, the West has done enough? Is there, do, you, do you feel, you know, like some people have commented that they're being more critical towards certain countries? Just interesting to hear your general perspective on, on, on what's happened since the invasion in terms of the international community. Well, I would say that it's not... Um... It's never black and white, you know, especially then it comes to geopolitical situation. What I observe that's, of course, like uh, mainly it's still seen as a uh, conflict between West and East. Uh, and it seems to me like Ukraine is somewhere, you know, in the center of this fight. So from the beginning, I, I observed that we are not, not as uh, like this. We are like an object more in this, you know, 
confrontation between NATO and Russia, you know, Biden and Putin and everything like that. But now the situation changed, uh, and especially then I see on this uh, geopolitical uh, map, it seems to me like it's quite interesting because now we see that many countries in Europe just, um, let's say, uh, somehow changed the power relocation. So basically now we see how Poland or Turkey trying to be, you know, the most... Uh, visible and the most effective countries uh, in this war uh, supporting Ukraine. And uh, from the other hand, we also see what happened in Hungary. Then the conservatives, yes, uh, mostly ultra-rights, again, won the uh, elections. And now we also observe what is happening in France. And they think that the position of Macron is also pretty dependent on this situation because he wants to somehow also to get electorate, which is uh, now, uh, let's say, more conservative. So basically, uh, that seems to me like uh, my expectation that the Europe will be more conservative in the nearest time, unfortunately. And that is something which we need all to consider uh, in our you know, efforts to somehow fight for democracy, for humanity, for human rights. So I expect that it will be very hard years after this war in terms of the human rights agenda. Elena, I wonder if I can ask, uh, the Russian propaganda machine has been in overdrive since the war began. The Russian state media trying to frame what we're seeing in Ukraine as fake news. You know, the the likes of the atrocities that we saw in Bucha. We had Putin yesterday saying were faked by the West. I actually personally met someone at the weekend, a, a man from Poland who was casting doubt on the Western reports about the atrocities that we're seeing in Ukraine. So I wonder what you would say to news consumers, particularly Russians, who are believing the rhetoric that they are being fed, that uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine is, is fake and that uh, the extent of the atrocities that have been perpetrated, you know, those who disbelieve them. I wonder what you would say to those news consumers. Uh, That's hard to say something um, to those who are still under this trend of uh, Russian propaganda because what I observe that mostly those people, even if they understand that this is completely, you know, untrue, are that uh, those people are lying to them from the TVs, Uh, it's still hard to accept it and to change the position, especially then you're isolated in your own country. So basically it works uh, with this propaganda, it works like that. Then you don't have anything. Like you live uh, almost in ruins without any access to economical, social equality. Uh, You need to believe in something. And this is why Putin is so popular. He just gave them the huge... Uh, nation idea of the great nation and nothing else you know uh, can't change their minds because they believe and this is the something which is also applied to other countries in such crises and honestly I don't know how to fight with that this is a very good question especially to international institutions and international let's say uh, mechanisms which are uh, from my point of view are completely a disaster Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. 
You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.